0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. There are all sorts of ways that we can be correct nowadays. There is cultural correctness, social correctness, and even religious correctness. And surprising to some, I'm a firm believer in correctness. But not the cultural, social, and religious variety. I'm a fan of heavenly correctness. And it's funny, but heavenly correct and social correct, rarely if ever, are the same, which makes things a little dicey for yours truly. Hey, this is Eric, and this is the 46th episode in my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II. If you would like to catch up on the other 45 soul-stirring episodes, you can find the link to the series at ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now let's head to the Eastern Front in World War II in 1942. And study what happens to a people when cultural correctness rules the church of Jesus Christ instead of God's truth and God's love. And let's contrast that with what happens when one single man stands up for what is heavenly right in a world gone terribly wrong. Well, it's really fun having uh, the Ferris here and uh, having uh, Isaac here. This is like a a very unique balance. Uh, We have... A lot of sturdiness in the room, and I think it's needed uh, for this particular message. And it's not that this message is any more difficult than the previous two. It's along the same lines. It's sort of like a mini-series in my series on World War II on the light shining in the midst of darkness. I almost called this message correctness because I feel like there's something about that concept that is very, very significant right now, and that is that we are in a position as Christians in this hour, in this time, where we have to choose how we are going to align ourselves. And it is so much easier, has been proven throughout history, so much easier for a Christian to sidle up to a culture and be correct with it and still believe, still hold on to their faith, but to compromise their life message. And I feel like this idea of correctness is significant because we, we have cultural correctness, social correctness. We even have a form of religious correctness, and I feel it. It's interesting. It's sort of like, Eric, don't abuse your position. Uh, you're taking your position, and you're overstretching it, and you're, you're saying things that actually might make the church at large look bad. So, how, how do you how do you handle these things? What do you do? There is a correctness that I think we do need to adopt. It's a kingdom correctness. How do we define that? Well, it's the Word of God. The Word of God is going to give us the cultural correctness of a kingdom. And every culture has a power to shape us. And it depends on which culture we submit to. if we com- If we submit to this culture and desire its good favor, if we desire its applause, It will conform us. But when we submit to the kingdom culture, then we will be conformed and shaped by it. The ends are very different. One is darkness. One is flesh. One is self-satisfying, self-ingratiating. The other one is God-glorifying. In American Christianity, I don't know if we have had such a pressure to conform to the pattern of this world As we have now, as a church. Now, I'm sure we could go through just American history and we could have pockets of time and illustrations where there were, like in the South during the Civil War era. I mean, that would have been a very interesting period to be a Christian and to know. Like, for instance, it was illegal to help the black slaves escape. And so you have this Underground Railroad, and it's only the Quakers that are going to rise up and be willing to go against that strong tide and where the church at large in the South would have frowned upon your behaviors. Well, that would be tricky. That'd be, and so we have these moments. This is a very unique time, and I think we're all feeling it. Because you say things like Black Lives Matter, and we're going to all say absolutely they do. They have tremendous value. And I would gladly, uh, if, if God would show me how I could effectively serve uh, and eliminate these racial tensions, I would love to. You know, I have two uh, children with black skin, and I think it is a delight, a wonder, a beauty. There is no issue in my soul of, of having some disparaging thought towards someone with a different color skin, a different ethnicity. However, it's being played that because of my skin, it's just baked into me, that I must be against uh, those of other skin color. So how do I respond to that? Because, well, that's actually not true. And yet I have to play a game and I have to agree with Black Lives Matter and their movement if I am going to somehow dispel this myth. But Black Lives Matter is anti-God. One of their leaders came out and said that they want to topple the statues of Jesus Christ now, except for the ones that are black. And I would say, all right. Have we seen enough, guys, to recognize the agenda behind this is anti-God? It's not just anti-male. It's not just anti-white. It's anti-God. It goes against the scriptural pattern. The culture of heaven is being violated and trampled upon in our midst, but it is incorrect to say anything about it. What do we do as the church of Jesus Christ? What do we do when the, the cultural correctness around us is so suffocating that if we do anything, we could even lose our life? Now, we're not at that point yet, But we are progressing. And when you study World War II, you begin to realize this is the pattern. And so in the last uh, session that I gave, the last episode, I was talking about the years 1933 through 1945, the window of trial for the Church of Jesus Christ in Germany. They and I, I was showing you that they didn't really elect Hitler. They did. On paper, they elected Hitler. But most of them didn't want Hitler. There was a tremendous cultural arm twisting going on. And that's what one of the things I was talking about in the last episode is that for a, a German, it's actually somewhat offensive to them to say, hey, you, you elected him. Because they're saying, we didn't have a choice. And you can say, what do you mean you didn't have a choice? It's your vote right there. Yeah, but it was a little Hitler sitting at the table and we had to walk in a long line. And if we don't sign, if we don't vote for Hitler, then they're going to march with torches on our house and hang us. Uh, Okay, so you could choose to vote for Hitler or be hung. And so which one? Well, 96% plus, they actually, I don't know if they ever finalized the number, voted for Hitler. One of the most astounding percentages of a vote of confidence for any leader in history was for Hitler from the German people, which is almost completely a Christian nation. 65 million Christians in the country, 45 million of them Protestants. And you're going to see a massive amount of these swings supposedly towards Hitler. Or did they? No, they silently defied but practically with their lives, they did nothing to defy. This is what I'm concerned about for us as the church, is that we will ideologically disagree with the direction that our country is going right now, but that practically we will be silent when a Christian must shine light, must remove that bushel and let the light shine in a generation. We are the vehicle that God uses to pierce conscience, to awaken, We are the carriers of the truth. However, to say that even sounds elitist. It's incorrect. It's just a fact, though. We serve Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Let's live as if that is true. So that's what is like a segue into this particular message. I actually have the book back in my bag. Let me give you a little backstory on the Moses of Ravno. This is actually a book. It was a book given to me by a guy named David Chalkley, and he gave it to me for my birthday. Uh, What was that? It was 1917. Boy, I'm going back to World War II here. Uh, uh, World War I. Uh, So it was 2017, so uh, two and a half years ago, is that what that is? And he wrote in the front of it a really nice note, basically saying this is a hard book for him to part with because it's actually signed by the author uh, just months before he died, and it's signed by the guy it's about, whose name is Fritz Grebe. And, uh, you know, if you haven't read the book, it might not mean much to you to have those uh, autographs in there, but when you read the book, you're like, whoa, this is a treasure. So, uh, It's interesting because I was very excited when he gave this to me. He says, I think, you know, this is one of the most impacting books that I've ever read. And and David Chalkley, if you know him, is a connoisseur of books. So now he's actually saying this is possibly one of the most impacting books in his life. And he's giving it to, to me. And so... I, I'm cherishing this, treasuring this, but we were right in some kind of internal move in our house, you know, where you move this room to this room and this, this stuff to this stuff, this over here, and suddenly I cannot find this book. So I would run into David and he'd be like, so have you read uh, the book? I, you know, I, I haven't yet, but I'm definitely in, in the back of my mind I'm like, I need to find that crazy book. What happened to it? And so the other day was last Thursday. Well, it was all last week. I was studying the Holocaust, I was preparing for this little mini series that I've been in because I felt like God was basically saying, focus here. I didn't actually want to. And there's nothing pleasant about uh, taking my attentions and studying the atrocities. And I've said this before in the previous uh, couple is that my fascination is actually not atrocities. It is the light that's shown in the darkness in the midst of all of that. That's actually my interest is how does this impact me? I'm not planning on following Hitler and the Einzelgruppen. I have no interest in behaving like that. I have an interest in behaving like Christ in the midst of that evil. And so that's an interesting study because it's there, but it's hard to find. It's not just surface level stuff. You study Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill isn't going to go into that. He's dealing with uh, global dynamics, and that's mainly where my study has been. But when you get into the, like, the Ten booms and Cory Tenboom and her writings, that's, that's extremely intriguing and engaging. And so I was uh, actually studying the Einstein group, and I was studying the, the rise of Hitler and the, uh, the cultural. Uh, the conforming of the culture. And it was uh, disturbing, as you guys could just imagine. And I was just sort of walking through the history of this and what was happening that the German society didn't know. And that is that when the Germans would take territory, they would bring in the Eitzengruppen, which is like the special forces, and they would immediately cleanse the culture. And so as a result, the new territory that they were gaining, that their German population could then inhabit, was going to be pure. It was going to be without this racial uh, blemish. And that was more than the Jews, okay? But we. one of my main focuses has been the Jewish population, but it involved peasants. It involved the disabled and the deformed. It involved the communists uh, because the communists and the Jews to the German were one and the same. They believed that all communists were basically Jews. And so it was was an ideological knitting for them. And so... What we have is just a, a a very difficult situation that I'm studying, and right at that time we're we're preparing our house uh, to sell and I was I had to move a whole bunch of stuff where I had uh, my clothes uh, in this one area, I was eliminating half my clothes and going to stick them uh, here for a temporary period so our house will look better. Uh, and so I was moving the clothes out of the way and there was a whole bunch of books back there. I'm like, aha. And so I was thinking about the Moses of Ravno the whole time. And I'm digging through layers after layers of all my old books, a really fun collection of books. It's like, where has that been? And so I get to, it must have been the third or fourth layer of books behind it in this one little uh, cabinet area. And there it was, the Moses of Ravno. And it was exactly on what I was studying. So here I had already prepared this message for Friday. And then I run into this book. And so I've spent a good deal of time, which I don't have a lot of time to read. Uh, I, 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 it, but if I can justify that it's part of my study, I can get away with things. And so I have been greatly impacted by this book and about, by this man's life. So I want to give you a, just a crash course uh, understanding. This, this message is actually called The Moses of Ravno. I didn't come up with the title, right? by the way. That's actually a slur. It was this man's title given to him by uh, Jew haters because he risked his life in the city of Ravno to preserve the lives of the Jews. It's an incredible story. Okay, this guy's entire story is great. This is just one little piece, but what it shows me is something that it moves me when I look at it it stirs me and I, I ask God, God, I want to live like this. I want to be ready to stand like this man stood, but I need you to do what you need to do inside of me to make that a reality. I don't like just esteeming things. I want to do Christianity. I don't want to, even for you guys, don't just hear a message like this and then have it not change your life. This is the sort of thing that has to alter us. If it doesn't begin a process of saying, God, okay, whatever it takes, I'm going to school now to be prepared to stand firm in the day of battle. When I study World War II and I see D-Day and I see the bullets flying and the, those, uh, I see these young men that are under this, uh, this hellfire that are going to be crying out for mommy, they're so scared, and some of their commanders are saying, run towards the cliffs and they're going to dive into the water. You see, they're so scared. They're unsteady in the day of battle. As a young man, first of all, I don't want that scene. I don't want to be there. But I know what God is preparing me for. In a sense, God is preparing me for Omaha Beach. So if I'm being prepared for Omaha Beach, I'm just honest. Okay, I know it. God, I know I'm being prepared for that. I know you are grooming me to stand firm in the day of battle. All right, what do I need to learn? What do you need to establish in me? What screws do you need to tighten? What do you need to lop off? What do you need to add? Here, here, here I am. Do it. That's my passion in this. As I'm walking through this, as I'm studying this up close, I got whatever it takes. It's interesting because when you study Fritz Grebe, his name was Herman Fritz Grebe, but there are certain attributes to his life that uh, Douglas Hinecki, who's the author who is like a Methodist minister, I believe. I, I haven't really studied much of him. It's, I don't know that he would be of the same conservative ilk, but he is of the same mindset of saying a Christian should stand. And one of the things he's going to be looking for is what makes someone do the right thing in the midst of wrong. And so that's why he's even writing the book. He comes to Germany just to sort of solve this riddle in his soul of saying, what is this, God? And how am I supposed to respond to it? And there's a couple things about Fritz that are different than the the Germans around him. And that is his mom and her training of him. His mom is going to invest into him in a way that is different than the typical German. The typical German, it's always going to be nationalistic, pride as the primary virtue in your christianity it's your patriotism and your loyalty to the german cause that actually is becoming to become a high virtue in the german society in their christianity it's going to be blended in and for fritz it's not that he didn't love his country that had nothing to do with it it's that he's an independent thinker apart from government government can be wrong in other words and if government goes away from god well then he's going with god I mean, that's not that shocking, is it? But that's exactly what we've had to be studying in World War II. When a government begins to go deviant, what do the Christians do? That's what we've had to study during COVID-19. What if a government goes deviant? Well, how do you respond to it as a believer? If I'm asked to do something that is contrary to what the Word of God says what do I do? Because if I place government so high that I will do whatever it says because Romans 13 says just obey and submit no matter what, well then what if they ask me to do something that violates the Word of God? I have to do something different. And that's exactly what you're going to see Peter and John say when they're asked to not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Decide for yourselves, is it better to obey God or man? And so Fritz Grabe is actually going to choose to obey God. And this independent thinking, even the term independent thinking sounds bad because as Christians, we don't have independent thinking. Hey guys, welcome. We don't have independent thinking. We have what we call kingdom thinking or canon minded thinking. We think in accordance with the word of God. It's not just we're independent. It's just that we recognize that the systems of this earth can go awry. And so that was one key dimension of Fritz Grabe's life. The second one was the fact that he felt that in every situation, he needed to understand the situation from someone else's point of view. And so when he gets to the issue of the Jews in World War II, he is going to put himself in the shoes of the Jews, and he's going to say, if I were in this circumstance, how would I expect to be treated? What would be appropriate? And what should I do? And what would I desire someone to do on my behalf? And so his conclusion in thinking through this, what would I do mentality is, well, I would want someone that had the power to help me to stand for me. And that's precisely what you're going to see in the unfolding of Fritz Grabe's life. Uh, Sorry, guys, that the screen is... Nathan was calling this our World War II mode, where somehow it's, it's, it's not as clear on the screen as it should be. In the, in the stream and in the video, it should be fine. Uh, so, the Moses of Ravno. Oh boy, uh, I'm glad you guys have that, that picture over there. So Hermann Fritz Grabe, the Moses of Ravno, Just like Christian, the term Christian, when it was first given, is a slur. It's, it's in a sense a form of derision. That's the Moses of Ravno. Oh, you're a Jew lover. Isn't that interesting? Because yes, I mean, I am a Jew lover. That's, that's a strange, it even sounds weird to say it. I love Jesus. <laughs> I'm a Jew lover, absolutely. And yet, I'm also a fan of this people group, not because I feel like they've made great decisions along the line, but I, I do have an affinity and a deep care for this people. But we could switch that to any people. Okay, you could say the LGBTQ community, and yeah, they've made a lot of mistakes and they're living in a very unhealthy way that is directly opposed to the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't mean I don't love them. And if there was an opportunity, if I laid out an opportunity that we could go in and risk our life, but we could rescue LGBTQ people today. It's like, guys, it may cost us our life, but we could see them set free. A Christian, the way we reason through that is absolutely... Because we put ourselves into the position, into the shoes of someone else, and we say, okay, I'm lost in darkness, I'm entombed in sin, and I don't even realize the true consequences eternally for this. I've duped myself, I've deceived myself. So, what would I desire someone to do from the outside that did know the truth and had the key to unlock my chains? Well, I would, I would hope that they would care enough to do whatever it took to rescue me. Christianity. There it is, right there. In other words, it doesn't matter if that person is hostile to us. They're hostile towards God. First, our desire is to leverage the truth of the kingdom of heaven to see people set free, to express the love of Jesus in a practical way. So this man, uh, just to give a little background, he's an engineer, and that's going to become critical in this period of time in World War II, because In World War II, as Operation Barbarossa, which is the Germans' attack on Soviet Russia, is progressing into the Ukraine and headed towards Moscow, there's a problem because the railway systems of Russia and the railway systems of the Germans are on different tracks. They're a different sort of system. And as a result, uh, it's like they uh, went, I'm trying to think of, uh, going from Lego to Duplo. Uh, I know Duplos are Lego, aren't they? Are Duplos Lego? That's, that sounds funny. It's like I haven't played with Duplo in a long time. Uh, but there are different systems. They don't fit together, right? And so the trains of the Germans that need to haul in all of the military supplies and all the food for the soldiers that are pressing beyond the lines of where their tracks go to suddenly can't get anything there because the tracks are different. They can't use the Soviet railways. So the engineer becomes the hero where he comes in and he actually you know, brings in his work crews and he's going to start laying tracks, building roads, doing whatever it takes so that they can bring the machinery, they can bring the military uh, needs, the food, everything to the front lines. Without that, soldiers die, which actually is going to happen. However, Fritz Grebe is right in the front lines. He's working for the top firm, probably in all of Germany, for engineering and construction. And so he is going to have a very unique position in this because he's not going to be drafted into the, into the war because of it. He's needed to build, which is going to put him in a position that is storybook. It really is. And he needs workers. And you know who's getting assigned to be the workers to do this difficult work in the Ukraine and beyond? It's going to be Jews. Jews. And so they're going to measure the Jews, and they're going to allow some of them to stay alive because they'll break their back instead of a German back. And so Fritz Grebe has a whole bunch of thousands, in fact, German—I'm sorry—Jews working for him. And so what a, a unique situation. So he's stationed in—see uh, if I can say this Dolbeniv, Dol, Dolbeniv uh, which is in Ukraine now on a map, if you were to see it. And so in this Operation Barbarossa, where the Germans are spreading their territory and tackling Soviet Russia, which is basically going to be their undoing, okay? Up to this point, they are occupying almost all of Europe. They don't have Switzerland, that's still a neutral, and they don't have Spain. Outside of that, they own everything, right? And so they are going to make a rather strange choice, Hitler will, to go after Moscow, and to sort of accomplish what Napoleon couldn't, Hitler's like, I could do it. And so even in the winter, he's going to end up in the exact same parallel situation that Napoleon was in, and he's going to lose millions of men in this. It's truly a bloodbath. It's a terrible uh, story. To study the Eastern Front of World War II is, is a very, very hard study. And yet in this process, Fritz Grabe is going to be right in the middle of it. And as The Germans are taking new territory. Remember, the Einsatzgruppen, the special forces police that Hitler has established, are going to be coming in and cleansing the society of all Jews. So how does that affect Fritz? Well, these Jews work for him. This is going to create a very, very unique tension. So he built an elaborate network of Jewish rescue while in the Ukraine during World War II. So the Einsatzgruppen, uh, it's sort of a fun word to say. I don't know that I say it correctly, but it's fun to say. Eins uh, It's basically a group of special trained police officers, uh, warriors, men that have, a, in a sense, a license to kill at their discretion. And their discretion is rather sketchy. Let's put it that way. I shouldn't even say rather sketchy. It's evil. These men are Exterminators they're going in and taking anything that would be a threat or anything that would be a blemish on the German rulership. So the intelligentsia in any community, any, any country, they come in and if you're smart, you're dead. If you could pose a threat to this new government coming in, you die. Jews, of course, are one of the number one targeted things and they call them pogroms which would be uh, almost like our word for it would probably be like a program. But what was that? It was an action against the Jews. So they actually called them Jewish actions. And so those actions would eliminate thousands of Jews in one day. And it was a very systematic process. And they would use local militia. They would use railroad workers. They would use whoever was uh, immoral enough to have some fun. And they would come into a city, and these cities could have, I mean, fifty to 100,000 people in them, but there could be 5,000 Jews. And they will come in, and they'll go door to door, and they'll get every single Jew, and they will exterminate every one of them. I mean, it's just, it's so horrifying to even try and swallow and comprehend, but this is what Fritz Grabe is in the middle of. It's not hard for us to see that that's wrong. It's It's not hard for us to see that that's evil. However, it's interesting because if I'm going to create a parallel with America today, there are things happening in America today that are obviously evil, but no one will acknowledge them as such. Because to say that that's evil, for instance, the autonomous zone in Seattle, that's evil. It is a rebellion. It is a disregarded It's disrespect to our nation, disrespect to our military, disrespect to the police, disrespect to the government. It's a snubbing in the nose at all of us. Uh, And so, it's evil. (laughs) What am I supposed to say? It's just evil. It's wrong. Everything about it's wrong, but you don't say that. And some of you are like, you are saying it right now, Eric. I know, that's because I'm just speaking straight. In other words, sanity has to reign. You have to be able to discern truth from lie. You have to be able to discern right from wrong, good from evil. Otherwise, you're going to fall. Under the spell of evil. You see, if you don't know what is true, Eve was caught in a fog bank. You see, God is going to speak his word in the Garden of Eden to Adam. Adam is entrusted with this fact that there are two trees, and do not eat from this tree. The day in which you eat from this tree, you will surely die. So then he's, as the priest of Eden, passing that along to Eve. Eve knows it, but she's somewhat in a fog. And when the serpent speaks to her, she's unsteady. You feel it in the story. She's unsteady. She's, she's, the serpent's questioning the word of God. Did God really say this? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't. You know, God is up to, you know, he's trying to hide things from you. But if you eat this fruit, you're going to see things that you would never otherwise see. She's dupable. So are we. We should not think such high thoughts about ourselves just because we believed in Jesus to think that we are not deceivable. If we were not deceivable, the enemy would, if we were bulletproof to deception, the enemy wouldn't waste his time. Believe me, he has limited resource. He has only one third of the angelic host, which means God has double the angels, right? And he's God. So the devil, when he uses his resource, has to use it wisely. It's limited. So if he's gonna come after you, that means there must be some way of stopping you. There must be something effective that he could do to either slow you or to trip you or to deceive you. And so as a result, we live in a world where we are dupable just as Eve was. And we must remember that, which is why we must be discerning. What do you need to be discerning? You need to have a solid understanding that the Word of God is in fact the Word of God. And you need to know it so that when those lies are floating around, you have something truth-based that you can measure it against. It's like, well, that doesn't match with God's word. That doesn't match with God's mind. That doesn't match with God's nature. That doesn't match with God. As a result, the Christians can discern in the midst of a fog bank, just like Fritz Grebe is going to do. His entire culture, all the Germans, are along for the ride. I mean, it's, it's a bad state of affairs. No one is willing to stand up for the Jews. No one. Even as it begins to percolate through society that, do you hear that they're doing this to the Jews? Oh, that's just, that's terrible. In other words, people know it's wrong, but what does that mean to them? Does that mean anything? Fritz Grabe is going to be in a position where he can do something. However, he is going to risk his life to do it. So the Einsatzgruppen is Hitler's special extermination forces. They're built in 1939 initially to actually go into Poland and eliminate the Polish intelligentsia. World War II starts September 1st, 1939 with the Hitler's invasion of Poland. And so as a result, the Einsatzgruppen is going to be established right in the very beginning. And it's like, hey, they're an extermination force. And when they are so effective in Poland with uh, with the Polish intelligentsia, it's like, huh, this is great. Hey, let's use this to get rid of the Jews too. And so what you see is the expansion of the Einzelgruppen and their evil uh, reign over all of this territory that Hitler is now conquering. Fritz is right in the middle of this. And it's a terror of terrors. It really is. So we're going to call it the action in Ravno. Now remember, the Jewish action is an extermination movement, okay? And so... If you look at the map today in the Ukraine, you're going to see the, uh, the, the title of, the, the name of the city is R- Rivne, uh, but in this story it's Ravno, of course he's called the Moses of Ravno, so technically you could translate that to the Moses of Rivne, but the goal in this action is what's called Judenrein, which means an area cleansed of all Jews. I mean, we have impurities in our life, we need to get rid of them. I'm in full agreement with that. However, this is a distortion of that idea. This is a very strange, weird mentality that you see uh, hovering about the Nazi German mind. And it's all under the banner of national pride. And remember how I said in the beginning, the Germans have a weakness and that is they bleed their, their Christianity into their nationalism. And so, as a result, in a strange way, they feel spiritual in knowing that these impurities are being removed. I've said this before, but I think it's bear repeating. Bear, it bears repeating. We have the same vulnerability of this Judenrein notion. I, I've heard it quite a few times from conservatives. It's just like, hey, if they want to behave that way, why don't they go somewhere else? You know, some island, get out of here, so that we can have our country back. I know some of you are like, well, did he just read my mind? You see, we would love to have all of this nonsense somewhere else. However, we need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap that the Nazi Christians fell into, which is to justify extreme measures to get rid of and to purge out that which we feel is our ideological nemesis. Because we do have an ideological nemesis right now. And here's what's funny. That's our mission field. That's our mission field. I mean, I'm not not saying I'm happy that we have an ever-growing number of those in our country that are antagonistic towards the gospel. It's not like I'm going to say, hey, could we have more of that? Oh, oh, great, our mission field's increasing. It's not like, that is a nice Pollyanna way of looking at it. However, to recognize that these are the souls that we are assigned to. We're not assigned to try and exterminate them. We're not the Einsatzgruppen. We're assigned to love them and to even lay down our lives to see them set free. I know, tension inside the conservative soul right there. They want us dead. I get that. However, we turn the tables on the whole thing by responding as Christ to them. We want them to live. Capital L, life. We want them to find Jesus. Jesus. So Grabe's Jews, uh, the Jews have such a high esteem for this man. He's on their, uh, what's that that called? The Street of the Righteous? I don't, I mean, there, there's a place in Jerusalem where they have plaques uh, and for the, those that stood for the Jews during the Holocaust. And Fritz Grabe has, has one of them. The Ten Booms have one. Uh, there's there's 120 of them in Ravno, of, of Grabe's Jews, and he promised to protect them. These are his workers in uh, Rav, Ravno at the time. And so he's, he's in a, a city, oh, I don't know what it was, about 10 miles away, and where he's stationed, and yet 120 of his workers are in Ravno. And so there's this word of an action, okay? But they hadn't really seen this at a great measure yet. This is really brand new to everyone, and so uh, initially, uh, he's actually going to come in and take all of his 120 workers and he's ready to hide them if necessary. But then they find out that, oh, I guess it must have been disinformation or misinformation and maybe there's not gonna be an action. So he tells them to return and they go, but what if there is gonna be an action? And this is what he says. I'll make sure that you're protected. Now he has no capacity to do this. He's an engineer. The Einsatzgruppen has guns. Has ammunition, has everything needed, and has mass mob power. I'll make sure you're protected. Boy, that was a you 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 want to say, Fritz? You you spoke a little too extreme on that. I remember I, I spoke pretty extreme. I was had my kids at Disneyland, uh, and you know we we're going to have fun at Disneyland. And uh, one of our youngest was not in, enjoying himself when he first arrived because uh, of the walking. We had to walk about a mile or two just to get there. And there was a sour attitude to start out. And so I corrected that sour attitude by saying, if this sour attitude doesn't change, then we're leaving Disneyland. And Leslie sort of looks over me and goes, oh, oh really? We're going we're gonna to leave Disneyland. See, th- th- you, you sometimes say things that make total sense in the moment, but then, you know, you're held to them. You know, as parents, we did end up staying the whole day. Uh, but I mean, those are, those are moments that you're like, ah, well, Fritz has said, I will make sure you're protected. And guess what? An action comes. And Fritz he, he actually shares with his wife. His wife had no idea what he was doing for the Jews at this time because he's doing a lot before this exact moment. And he's actually creating jobs. He's actually getting contracts on purpose so that he can recruit Jews to get them out of these death camps, which started in 1942. So he's actually employing as many as he can. And he's getting to the point where he has hundreds, then he has thousands, then he has oh, I came up to around 6,000 that were working under him, that he was creating a certain form of justification why they shouldn't be touched. I mean, what an interesting plan for protecting Jews. I mean, when you feel small, like we all do, and you're like, God, but I, I don't know what to do to help. You say, God, give me the Fritz Grabe plan, whatever that is for me. Show me what I can do. And so, in this situation, again, he has 120 of his workers And this action is coming. He's going to tell his wife, here's the situation. (laughs) I have 120 of my workers that are trusting that I will do something to protect them. Fritz, what could you do? I don't know, but I need to do something. And I mean, everyone that is in his office that is in on the rescue work that they do is horrified that Fritz is thinking of doing this. Because at that point in time, in a strange way, you start to lose the value of human life just like in the bubonic plague, so many people start dying that you actually start taking life a little less seriously. It's like, oh yeah, just another life. That's a very, very dangerous place for a Christian to ever come to. Every single life must always matter. And so there, in a sense, you sort of feel it. It's like, well, maybe you could let these 120 go to protect these others. I mean, oh, this would be a tension. Because if he Goes publicly and he goes to Ravno, everything he stands for could be exposed. Because right now, he looks like a loyal partyist. I mean, he literally is an actor in his role. He looks like a party guy, and the reason he has Jews is to get them to work. He wants them to get some backbreaking work, and we need to make way for our military to do what our military needs to do. This is his whole front. Okay, he's this gruff guy whenever he's around government officials, and he always is talking about secret orders from Berlin, and everyone's like, oh, you got orders from Berlin? And then they don't touch him. And so he literally has this whole masquerade going to preserve all these Jews. Great story, by the way, guys. But if he goes and stands in Ravno to defend Jews, ah, uh, he could look like a Jew lover, And if he looks like a Jew lover, he gets thrown into the ditch and shot down by the Gruppen as quickly as that is exposed. There is no trial in Nazi Germany. If you're exposed, remember the Gruppen has a license to kill. And if they sense that you're a threat, you're dead. It doesn't matter if you have orders from Berlin. And so this is serious stuff. So he's actually going to end up getting a paper that uh, he didn't have any confidence in it, but from a government official that said, we will preserve your 120. Uh, and so that, that's a great story in and of itself. I can't go into that one. But he has this piece of paper. That's all he has is that they will preserve his 120 because he needs them to finish the job because Berlin is given a special order. And If he doesn't finish this road and this railroad for Berlin, Berlin's going to get your head. And so the guy's like, okay, I'll sign whatever you need to sign. So he has this piece of paper. What does a piece of paper do in a dark night when people are bloodthirsty and just killing every Jew around you? And so how's this going to work? Well, let me walk you through the story. So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. First of all, this is one of the most crucial scriptures that I will always go to when it comes to my own position. If I'm the Jew in this story, I feel very vulnerable. But I have the word from Fritz Grabe that he is going to protect me. It's like, what, what, that, that doesn't sound like much to stand on, right? We have something to stand on. Our Lord has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What I love about this story is such a picture of Christ entering into the impossible straits to stand on our behalf. It's an intercessor in such a beautiful way. King David in Psalm 37, 8 is going to say, for the Lord loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever. So we understand that God is the one that says to us, I'm going to be there for you. If an action is coming against you, you can just imagine how terrifying this is. You know, there are a lot of Christians right now that are terrified. They really are. Nothing's happened to them. No danger has actually befallen them yet. They haven't really run into persecution, and yet they fear feel it. They feel a storm cloud, and they feel vulnerable. Now, I'm very sensitive to the fact that, you know, as I talk about things like this, it can make people a little disturbed. God has given us everything we need to thrive in the midst of this season. Everything. And I don't just mean to make it through to the other side and go, whew, wow, well, we made it through that. No, I mean to go through it in such a way that we rejoice that we have smiles on our soul, that we anticipate the days to come. We wake up with an energy knowing that the Spirit of God is desiring to use our life to shine light in the midst of darkness. You see, a Christian is buoyant. They're like a Cheerio in milk. You guys have heard my Cheerio in milk illustration? Okay, you, you stick your finger on a Cheerio in milk and you push it down. And what does it do? Bloop. So the enemy goes, pushes it down. Bloop. We are Cheerios in milk. Right now, we got a lot of milk, and we got a lot of fingers pushing us down. However, we are buoyant. We're filled with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God doesn't go down. It goes up, and as a result, we pop to the surface with a bloop sound every single time the enemy tries to pull something on us. Jehovah God says, Isaiah 41.10, fear not. This is a great message for all of us right now. Fear not, for I am with you. Uh, Pause. Hold. Squeeze the words like they're a grapefruit. Get all the juice out of them. Fear not, for I am with you. Do you believe that? As Christians, we do. We're believers. We believe that He actually is with us, even in the darkest points. When if you're in Ravna on this night in 1942, you don't feel like there's a God in the universe, according to the natural. You're looking out there and you're not seeing much evidence of God. Wait, wait a minute. There's a street lamp in this dark street where you hear screams, cries, gunshots, exploding grenades all night long. You know what you see? You see Fritz Grabe standing in the street all alone because everyone's cleared out of the streets. There's one guy standing out there under a street lamp. Why is he doing it? So that these two houses full of Jews could look out and see that someone is standing for them. You see, he's a symbol of something. He's the reminder of God. He's not God. He can't actually save a Jew in his own strength. He's powerless against this. But he is like we are in this world. He's weak, but he's willing. And as a result, there's this faint light upon this one man standing alone in a street, basically saying, you have to get through me to get to them. Whew. That's an incredible picture. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Grabe's stand. While thousands of Jews are mercilessly being killed in the vast city of Ravno, not one person other than Fritz Grabe did anything about it. He's one guy against a tidal wave, and yet he stands. The fact that this guy lasted through the war, he's going to be the chief witness in the Nuremberg trials against the, uh, the Nazis. This guy has a memory like an elephant, and he remembers every detail. In fact, he even records it as he's going through it so that he can testify against them in the end. He wants justice for the weak. I mean, this is a pretty extraordinary man. So he's in the middle of this witnessing all of the atrocities. He's seen them that night. And in his mind, he's saying, this will be dealt with. God is faithful. God is just. This man is a very, very strong Christian. He loves Jesus Christ, and he loves justice. Solomon says in Proverbs 21, 28, 1, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I don't know if any of you feel like, I mean, here we are the righteous. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Technically, we are the righteous, right? He is the capital R righteous. We are the righteous with a lowercase r because we're clothed in Him. And what does it say of us? (laughs) The righteous are bold as a lion? (laughs) I don't know if that describes me very well, right? I think that's how most of us feel. And yet, this is actually what our inheritance is. We have the gift, and this is what my last message was on. Of boldness. It doesn't, we don't find it in our own pockets. We find it from the treasury of heaven. We ask for it, we get it. So that we can pull a Fritz Grabe and we can be bold as a lion to stand in that empty street under that street lamp to let all the Jews know someone cares. Someone cares. Uh, Fritz, you do know that you're going to die tonight. That's why I say it's pretty amazing that the guy lives through all that. How did he live through that? So Daniel three sixteen through 18, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see three guys stand and they're unwilling to bend. They're unwilling. They're willing to stand under that street lamp and, and not budge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I'm not backing down. He says, you're going to be thrown into a a, a furnace of fire. So be it. Our God will protect us, and even if he doesn't, even if we end up being devoured by the flames, we will not bow. So Douglas Sinecki, who's speaking of Fritz Grebe and this night in Ravno, he says, "...from the time he arrived in Ravno that evening until nearly six o'clock the next morning, Fritz stood in the streets at a spot where his workers could see him from their hiding places in two separate houses." He reasoned that if there were trouble, the desperate refugees might take flight and further risk their lives. His presence at that location would calm them. The sons of Korah in Psalm 46, 5 declare God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. This, it just sounds like the, the same story. But it's an amazing thought to think because I can, in this story, very quickly put myself in the Jews' position and knowing that I have a family and they are desirous to hunt me down and destroy me. And the, the very real sense of insecurity that could come into such a circumstance is, is palpable and uh, I can taste it. I can also understand the Fritz Grabe position and understand how hard this would be. Both positions are really hard. But as Christians, we are in both. We are the vulnerable that need to know that God is going to stand for us. And there's nothing to fear. He is with us. And we are the Fritz Grabe who needs to know that the unshakable God of the universe is going to supply us with boldness and courage to do what must be done right now for the week. Whichever situation you're in, whichever hat you happen to be wearing at that hour, you have all that you need in Jesus Christ. So speaking of Fritz Grabe... A symphony of slaughter echoed through the city all night. Bullets whistled and ricocheted off brick walls. Grenades flew like wingless bats, exploding and sending fragments, smashing against glass and splintering wood. Trucks filled with guards darting in and out of alleys, careening frantically, tires screaming and people howled. The final human sound in this, the requiem. The Jewish actions were studies in mayhem and Chaos. People who in normal circumstances might never harm anyone suddenly succumbed to bloodlust and hatred. The Ukrainian militiamen went from house to house to house, smashing doors, breaking windows, carelessly trampling on furniture and personal things, while indiscriminately beating children, women, and old men with the butts of rifles. Once a group of militiamen came to the door of one of the houses where Grabe's Jews were hidden. Uh Uh-oh. The time's come, guys. They're now coming to that house. And Grabe's been waiting all night long in the midst of this mayhem. Grabe, sorry, I typed this in from the book, obviously. Grab is not his name. Okay, Grabe dashed toward the house shouting at them, but because he spoke no Ukrainian, none of them understood him. Fritz has never forgotten that horrifying scene. So then I have Fritz's actual take on it, his words on this. It was a terrible moment before the confrontation with them. What was I to do? I spoke no Ukrainian, and they spoke no German. As they prepared to bash in the barricaded doors, I decided I had no alternative. I pulled the automatic pistol from my coat and made it very clear to them that I would shoot unless they went away. They seemed to understand the universal language of violence, but I was terribly frightened. This is not the sort of guy that would ever shoot a gun, right? He's, he's not of that order or that nature, and yet he has an automatic pistol on him, so he pulls it out. I was certain I would be forced to fire the gun and people would be hurt. The Ukrainians had the same fear because they saw that mine was an automatic weapon and theirs were not. And they're actually going to back down. This guy will never shoot that gun. And, and yet, what a moment to walk through. He is literally going to say, you have to get through me. And they, he can't speak in Ukrainian. say, I have a paper and it's signed by the official of this area that says these 120 are not touched. And yet he is going to actually, at the risk of his own life and his own reputation moving forward, this is where he's going to get the, the nickname, the slur, the Moses of Ravno, the Jew lover. He is risking everything. He's risking his cover. He's risking all of his other Jews in the process of taking a stand for these 120. Isaiah, this is how we're going to finish today, guys. Isaiah 53.5. What we're seeing in this is a modeling. It is a template. It is not something that we have been tested with personally, probably to a great level. We've had micro tests as Christians of standing up. But if we don't stand up in small things, we will not stand up in the streets of Ravineau. If we don't learn to stand up now and be bold with truth, it does not mean we're not loving, it does not mean we're not kind. It does not mean we're not winsome and gentle in how we say it. But there are, there's truth, and it's under siege right now. It's being undermined. The spirit of lawlessness is spreading throughout our nation. And the righteous are pandering to gain position of influence and to try and pander the approval of the others that are more correct in this. So many examples of this. And yet, a Christian doesn't pander after the good opinion of the world. It is seeking rightness with God. I represent a different culture. I'm an emissary of a different culture so that I can cut through your fog bank down here and shine light so that you can see. Let's expose a few cockroaches. Turn on the light. You see, that's what we do. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Never throughout history has the church been popular. I mean, yeah, Constantine's era, that's not a healthy church when it's governmentally mandated that you become a Christian. That's still not a popular church, by the way. That's a, okay, dutiful willingness that I will do that so that I don't lose my head. That's not a healthy church. When the church is healthy, it creates ripple effects. I've oftentimes said there's two options when the church gets healthy, if the church is revived. One, revival breaks out cultures alter and begin to conform to the culture of heaven. Or two, they begin to erect crosses again and hang us on them. Those are our two options. I see no middle ground for us to hang out in and just pacify and make sure that everyone's happy. We as Christians have a job to do. The king of the universe has given us a commission, last time I checked, and we are to bear witness of his triumph at the cross and over the grave. We are to bear witness of his high-seated position at the right hand of majesty. We are to bear witness that our God lives, our God reigns, our God has done it. He has conquered sin and death and set the people of this earth free if they will humble themselves and repent and turn and believe upon him. We have a job to do. And that job is, brace yourselves, Politically, culturally incorrect. So if you're looking to be correct with this world, you are incorrect with heaven. If you are looking to be correct with heaven, you will be incorrect in this world. We need to land our feet solidly in this hour. I yearn, as I know many of you do, to be a Fritz Grabe in this hour. I have no idea what that will mean. No idea. Fritz Grabe had no idea what he was getting himself into. He had no models. He had no idea what this was going to look like. He just knew he needed to do something. So he started with little somethings. And then he started with, and he moved into bigger somethings. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of the cross. Where Jesus is going to stride into the middle of the darkness. Where the enemy's territory, where he has his Einsengruppen. And he is going to step in front and say, take me instead. Oh, powerful stuff. The intercessor, capital I, our model of models, our king of kings, our rescuer of rescuers. Isaiah 53:5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He stood for us. He sets a pattern in motion for us to follow, and that is that we stand for others. We are gladly ready to lay down our life for Him and for others. This is a model, but it's been lost in our American version of Christianity because our American version of Christianity appeals to self-comfort, and as a result, we're off balance. There's a dizzied state, and it needs to be solved with truth. Father, we need your grace. We need your boldness. We need your pattern. We want to be correct with your culture. Lord Jesus, remind us as the saints of God today of who we live for and what our assignment is. May we not lose sight of it in the midst of this fog bank. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen.